Welcome to Bloombox Growing Deeper. I'm Sarah. I'm Hannah. And we're on a mission to help you become the gardener you want to be. Okay, welcome back, gardeners. We are here with Ann Powers today, and I'm super excited that she agreed to an interview because she just got her master's and she did her research on Bloombox, which is so cool. So, Ann, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Okay, so I am a research technician for the Department of Agronomy and Horticulture, and what that means is I just get to do a bunch of different stuff to support the department, and I also get to lecture in the School of Natural Resources about trees, which is super fun. So what has been your favorite um, lecture to give so far? Was mm-hmm. that like asking someone to pick their favorite child? <laughs> with trees, yeah. <laughs> so we just got done with arboriculture, which is a class about caring for trees. And the one class that, and I teach the lab, and so the one class that students get really excited about is pruning and actually taking care of trees, which I thought would be kind of a boring lab for them, but they all loved it. So that turned out to be a good one. So we were talking a little bit before we started recording about like what is a master's degree? So you've gotten your bachelor's, that's your four-year degree, yep. and your master's is the next step in um, college education. So you told me there's kind of two ways to approach this, and I think a lot of people have heard the word thesis. Um, you think about somebody doing their master's thesis paper. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But you took a slightly different track. Yes. So I just completed a research project. So it's a little bit different than a a thesis. Um, My master's also did take me four years. So it's like I have two four-year degrees. But um, the master's uh, coursework that I've been doing over the last four years kind of ties into and supports the research that I was able to do. So I took a lot of classes on like, you know, landscapes and methods for research and mapping and all kinds of fun stuff. So it really did help me put together a better project at the end. And so how did you connect to Bloombox? Because I think I met you when you were coming to ask questions about how the program worked. So what what connected you to us or made you think of doing your project around Bloombox? Okay, so I have a co-advisor and his name is Doug Golick. And Doug was involved in the, I think, the initial grant that supported Bloombox. And he had always had questions about, you know, how the project is working and the successes of it and how it's changed. And so when I asked him for a project idea, he kind of threw one that that one at me. And I've always admired Bloombox. I know I've kind of fangirled it and like side you like just watching it and keeping track of it. And so when he threw that at me, I was like, oh well this could be a way that I could be involved in Bloombox and and really get kind of the into the nitty gritty of how it's been working and how people perceive it, which I thought would would be really interesting. And it was. <laughs> okay, so that leads me into the title of your paper, which I did read most of. I skimmed <laughs> some of the uh, wordier sections, uh-huh. but I'm going to read you the title. Okay. And you can maybe interpret for us because sometimes academic language, just like garden language, is its own uh, 
species. Mm-hmm. So we've got affordances of a pre-designed pollinator garden program on personal development and engagement with others. Right. So okay. what's the essence of that? <laughs> the essence of it. Okay, so kind of to break it down, what I wanted to think about was how people were engaging with the Bloombox program and what they were getting out of it for themselves and how they were interacting with other people regarding and surrounding the Bloombox. So one class that I remember taking was actually through NC State, and it was about designing gardens for children. And one concept that they always talked about was the affordance of the garden. What is the affordance of the space or what is the affordance of like an attribute of the space? So for instance, if you have in um, like a children's garden or children's like play area, a, a sidewalk, then one affordance of that could be that you could roll something with wheels down that sidewalk. And Similarly, if that sidewalk was a loop, then kids could go around the loop on their wheeled things, you know, so just trying to identify those affordances in the garden space or in in the space in general is sometimes it's more straightforward, like, you know, a circular sidewalk leads to a racetrack. But sometimes I think it's a little bit more difficult for those things to be apparent. And so so those affordances to be apparent. Um, so what I wanted to look at was what are the things, what are the common things that people are getting out of these spaces that we might be missing or overlooking or taking for granted? So I guess that leads to what, what were some of the things that people were taking for granted when it comes to bloombox and gardening for pollinators in general? I guess. I think that one thing that I, this was unexpected for me, was in talking with people. So let me back up a little bit. So with the research that I did, I did a survey that was sent out to everybody who had purchased a bloom box. And then I, after those surveys went out, one of the last questions was, are you interested in being interviewed? And so I got a lot of data that helped me especially from that interview that helped me understand a little bit better what people were getting out of it. They could tell me their stories. They could tell me how they interacted with other people. Um, And one interesting thing that kind of jumped out at me at first was that most people, and this was in the survey as well, because I did have open-ended questions, most people, almost everybody, and everybody in the interview, I did 11 interviews, they all have plans for more. And I think, you know, even though reflecting on that, it's like, well, yeah, no duh. Like, if you know a gardener, you know a planner, <laughs> like somebody who's like, well, next year I'm going to do this, or I'm never doing that again, or whatever. But that was kind of, that was pretty cool, especially because I did talk to two gardeners who were rather new. And for them to already like be on the garden crazy train of like, well, next year, <laughs> like have more plans was pretty cool to see. And in reflecting on it now, you're like, oh, OK, yeah, of course. But it still is, you know, something to be noted, I think, especially when um looking at this through the lens of of the program developer or the program planner, that people are usually really invested in plants and aren't, this isn't just like a one-time thing. So Mm -hmm. that was cool. You have a quote in your paper that I just love and is probably going to end up on my wall now, but it is, it is because of the garden that the gardener can define themselves as such. And likewise, the gardener cannot be without the garden. It's also because of the garden that the gardener can learn through experience the habit and culture of plants, hone their skill, demonstrate their values, and observe the natural connections between plants and wildlife. (laughs) If you could have picked, like, a quote that 
was why we do Bloombox, yes. that would be it. It would take it. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like something I would read in Sand County Almanac. It's very good. <laughs> My advisor, like, legit was like, did you write that? <laughs> like yeah for sure it was in one of my really reflective moments I guess (laughs) but I think it answers so as you were doing your research you popped in my office a few times with little stories about (laughs) things people were telling you and exciting stories you'd heard and that quote like really captures this like um purpose of Bloombox isn't just to plant gardens but to like spark interactions Mm -hmm. between people and their plants but also like people and each other Mm -hmm. and so you did ask some questions of people like how many conversations have you had about the garden or what type of conversations have you had so can you tell us a little bit about like how you saw um this like our Bloombox gardens sparking interactions between people mm-hmm. yeah okay so this one gentleman in particular that I talked to he was very new to gardening but like really into just the like natural garden and natural space and didn't want turf and when I was talking with him about um you know are are you interacting with your neighbors at all and he said yeah this lady down the street you know, asked me for cuttings or asked me for seeds. And, and I, he referred to her, I think endearingly as the, the crazy plant lady down the street. And I was like, you know, everybody, every neighborhood has to have one of those. And I am definitely that person in my neighborhood. So I don't take offense to that, but it was, he, you know, in talking with him about her specifically, he was like, yeah, we knew who she was, but it wasn't until we put the sign out and we started growing things that she wasn't familiar with that she felt like, okay, like there's this common ground that we have and we can have this conversation. And and so that was a common theme as well, where people were talking with neighbors or talking with dog walkers because they had that that plant or those plants in the front of their house or they had that garden style in the front of their house and it's almost like this like-mindedness that people are attracted to one another to be like hey like you you value the same things that I do and I appreciate that I was putting in a new garden in my front yard this weekend a big one in fact Sarah was kind enough to provide me with a bloom box plant (laughs) I just had to get my own plants um and it was, uh, since I've been so busy with Spring Affair and everything, like, I did it all this weekend. I did the bed prep. <laughs> I did the soil amendment. I did it all at the same time. So it was like a six-hour event. Mm-hmm. And everyone, like, I think I talked to nine people who were walking by, wanted to know what I was doing. What was I planting? Why did I choose those plants? Mm-hmm. Those things like that. And I think I am a little bit people know I'm associated with NSA, so they ask me about plants a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes they're disappointed in what I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think I have that in my neighborhood as well, that little bit of a crazy plant lady. But it is amazing what just putting in a garden can do for a community mm-hmm. and for your neighborhood and for bringing people together. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you highlighted that in, yeah. in this research. Yeah. Yeah, and the the front yard gardening, that kind of thing, and it was interesting to hear the people talk about that as well, uh, especially with um, in regards to children. 
you know? And, oh, yeah, I put the sign up because I wanted kids to know that there's pollinators in the area or to, like, look out or whatever, which I, I love that other people think about kids when they do this, but I'm also like, well... I like looking at <laughs> pollinators and I like looking at plants as well. But it was almost just like this extra justification that they needed. But it's also great, you know, because I think interests in plants and insects, like, you know, when you spark that at a younger age, it's more impactful. But adults can still be, I think, mesmerized by plants and pollinators as well at any age. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I don't remember if, was it you and I having a conversation about how kids don't really need the sign? Yeah, they we, don't. We think that they do because as adults we need the sign mm-hmm. telling us it's okay to touch but if you've met a kid they don't need permission no <laughs> <laughs> they, if they see something they want to observe they're going to mm-hmm. and um i kind of love that you know our mind went there that we should put out a sign so the kids know mm-hmm. but um also i think if you you know if i see kids stopping to look at something then, you know, I'm likely to kind of wait till they're done and go look at it myself. So sometimes kids are the signs for adults <laughs> to true. go look at something. It's true. And you're right. They totally don't need the sign, especially because they're at eye level usually <laughs> with the pollinators and the plants. And yeah, kids aren't out there reading signs. <laughs> they're not. So speaking of what got you interested in this line of research or work or like was there a young child experience that really spurred you or is it just something that you developed over time and sorry we did warn you about this question yeah you did. <laughs> um okay so i have worked in public landscapes since 2006 with a two-year hiatus when i was a teacher because I did get my undergrad in elementary education. And I've worked um, on the university's landscape for a a long time, like I said, since 2006. And I spent a lot of time on city campus over 10 years. And in my time working on city campus, I spent a lot of time in Love Garden. And I spent a lot of time kind of in the core of campus where there are a lot of people. And I, when you're a landscaper in a really busy place like that, you tend to just blend in and like people don't see you, which is fine. Um, But I just watched people, just watch how they interacted or like how they walked through spaces or how they saw things or didn't see things, um, where they sat, what they looked at, where they stopped, that kind of thing. So I've always kind of been interested especially in college campuses like how landscapes are used and you think about you know the university and and most of my experience obviously comes from UNL but just how much outdoor space there is and what we're actually using that for and I would love to see more educational spaces and so that kind of drives me um, thinking about just how we can better utilize our outdoor spaces and it's hard in Nebraska of course because we get wicked winters and we have humid summers but there still is opportunity there that I think is untapped so Stay tuned for that PhD dissertation that I know that you'll read all of it. (laughs) Hey, I read 19 out of 23 pages of your paper. Maybe. (laughs) That might be generous. I did want to point out, though, you've kind of been making me think, um, you know, we put a lot of stock in making sure kids get experience outdoors in a green space. And I'm not taking away the importance of that 
that's a huge part of my work. And I agree that the earlier we intervene and get kids outside, the longer that impact can last. But it's not too late. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big part of Bloombox is that we're we can be people's first interaction with plants or the outdoors or observation or gardening at any age. I mean, I sent, I've sent bloom boxes to 85 year olds. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have to be six to have your first interaction outside and to have it be meaningful. And a college campus is a great time for that because it's a first time for a lot of people to be away from home in a new environment Mm -hmm. and having new experiences. And I agree are, our outdoor campus environment is hugely important to that. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the classes that I get to teach is dendrology. So that's just the study of trees, identifying trees, thinking about the you know ecology of trees. And it's so interesting to see the students that come into that class. And it's a 200-level class, so usually it's freshmen and sophomores. After they leave, even though they came in with almost little interest or maybe just like, a oh, trees would be kind of cool, they leave with this greater appreciation. And I, I remember talking to um, Dr. Eric North when he left uh, this class for me to take over, which was so kind of him, that he reflected the same thing. And I remember thinking like, oh, he's like, you know overplaying it or or whatever but in those evaluations and how many students and it's so crazy because they are just not very emotional in class and they don't ask a lot of questions but at the end of it they're like this was a very interesting class and like I'm changing my degree (laughs) like really (laughs) like I've never looked at trees like this before and so you're right like yeah and there's no age that's too late to appreciate Mm -hmm. nature well and You don't need to be the super involved gardener to be appreciative of nature or to support, um, you know, the habitat and green infrastructure of our cities. Sometimes one of those people in your class may go on to have nothing to do in their daily life with trees, but maybe they're the city administrator that approves a project or, you know, things like that. We need nature appreciators in all walks of life. Right. Exactly. So another kind of section of your paper, you talked about like the why did people bloom box and and why are they staying involved? And, you know, habitat, conservation, sustainability all came up. Um, But was there any, you know, standout reasons or surprising reasons that you came across? There was an interesting thread of connection between supporting pollinators, because that was the number one reason that people chose to participate, and the the importance of native plants. I appreciate native plants, and I think they're great, and I love going out into more natural spaces to observe native plants. I don't and I am a gardener as well, but I don't necessarily track down native plants to put in my own yard like I think some of the people who participate in Bloombox are, which surprised me. Um, But also it made sense because a lot of native plants, as you know, are not easily available or readily available for many people. So I guess that kind of surprised me a little bit to see the high value placed on not just native plants, but like native non-cultivar plants, which, I mean, there's a lot of research that supports that even cultivars do support pollinators. There's like this purist attitude that that kind of took me by surprise, I should, I guess. That often surprises me too. Mm-hmm. And I know part of it is um, 
we are a great source for shipping native plants across the state and I'm happy to see more availability across the state because Bloombox is a limited program Mm -hmm. and I hate every time I have to tell somebody I'm sorry I'm full Mm -hmm. Um, and I know that I'm the only one you thought of for getting native plants and I want to see that change. But um, sometimes I can be a touch frustrated by the purist attitude as well, especially when it comes to cultivars and seed strains in the garden, because that research is very wishy-washy. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can read a paper that says cultivars have no support for pollinators, and then you can turn right around and read a paper that says cultivars have the exact same impact Mm -hmm. as stray species. I think we need more of that research Mm -hmm. to get to the answer, but... Um, we also have to realize the reality of where we're gardening, Mm -hmm. that we're not gardening in native habitat Mm -hmm. anymore. We're gardening in urban areas. And sometimes that cultivar can be the thing that makes the plant work Mm -hmm. in a garden, in urban soil, um, aesthetically to the human eye in our habitat, Mm because this is a shared habitat. And so, yeah, sometimes that, that surprises me as well. And I'm happy to get people native plants as much as possible, but Um, I prefer the conversation around natives rather than the, you know, I want straight species heath aster and nothing else. Mm -hmm. Well, have you seen straight species Mm -hmm. heath aster in Mm -hmm. a garden? (laughs) We might want to have a conversation Mm -hmm. about that. Yeah. Or I think about, you know, just the limitations of space as well, where you're gardening in an urban environment and you want to create that biodiversity. So you want to get as many plants as you can into a space realistically. But, you know, the native species oftentimes take up a lot of space and one that comes to mind is lead plant and so lead plant is one of my favorites I love you know when they start blooming and their anthers get all orange and the flowers purple like that's so cool but they do take up a lot of space like I couldn't put one in my yard I wouldn't put one in my yard I could if I wanted to but they make there is a a cultivar that's called uh it's a dwarf cultivar and it's so cool like and why wouldn't you use that so it sounds Sounds like a lot of the Bloombox planters, I guess gardeners, mm-hmm. um, were interested in the native plants and attracting pollinators. But did anything come to light that they were surprised about uh, once they installed their Bloombox or built their garden that they were like, I didn't think I wanted it for this, but now I enjoy that aspect of it? Um, I, I can't say... In that regard, there was surprise. There was one woman that I talked to, and we kind of had a giggle about this because I have the same like mental block, I guess you could call it, where you know you get a tiny little bloom box plant in the spring, and the tag says it's gonna do this, but it's so little. Like, how could it possibly get four feet tall and grow, you know, three feet wide? It's so, it's so small and so you plant it too close to something else because you're just like there's no way and then of course it grows to be gigantic and you're like dang it I should have known better I've been gardening for a long time and why is this catching me by surprise so that was one thing that did come up a couple of times was they got so big Uh, listeners will remember my my first bloom box where I planted a Baptisia alba in the wrong place. <laughs> the exact wrong place. And every year, I, I finally, Sarah got to come see it last year, and she was like, what is this happening? <laughs> what is this plant? <laughs> I have to, like, tie it up with my fence to keep it from getting run over by my car every year. Like, it's... <laughs> 
<laughs> it is the worst. So I can relate to that. Yeah. And I did just plant a new one this last weekend. And I was like, this one I'm going to put in a good spot. And I think I did. I'm good. So. Keep, keep us posted yeah. on that. <laughs> it's so common. And it's so funny because um, I forget. So I in my in my non-work life, I sew mm-hmm. a lot. And so I'm a great judge of small spaces. I can I can come up with an inch out of thin air, but I cannot tell you what six feet looks like to save my life. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, this year. If you're getting a bloom box this year, you're going to find a measuring tape. (laughs) And on the measuring tape, it says measure twice, plant once. Because it's so deceptive when you're out in the garden. Space looks so big and the plant looks so small. Um, But the design was done from the mature size. And so if we just can measure that out and get a good feel for it, we'll still feel weird for a few weeks, but... Once the plants grow, I promise you won't. You'll get it. I've already utilized that <laughs> tape measure a couple of times. <laughs> Very handy. Okay, so toward the end of your paper, you've got a section called discussion. And what you brought up was that, you know, from your survey responses, people are highly motivated by, um, you know, the benefit to pollinators the sustainability of the garden, but then they also valued this interaction with others and, and sense of community they got from Bloombox. So did you get any any more on that that you could share with us or any ideas going forward, what we can add? Because adding to this community is always something we're trying to do. Yeah, the community piece really came out of... Um a person that started a bloom box garden at a church and that even though um, the bloom box garden wasn't the only piece of the garden, it kind of kickstarted their garden. And so there were a lot of people that were really involved in like wanting that space to be successful. And so the story that this woman told me was this church was, you know, going downhill and losing members and the garden kind of created this sense of connection for everyone, like this goal that they could all work toward together. And so in that instance, it really was essential in building that community. Um, The other community builder piece was at the school. And there was a school garden that was planted for middle schoolers. And that was a quote that the teacher gave me that I really liked was, you know, the students just want to go hang out there. You know, they want to be out of the classroom. They want to be away from screens. They just want to go hang out. And so it's not even like about the gardening. It's more about the space. So that space affords them like this little area of of their lives where they can just kind of disconnect from all of the regular things that they do. Um, With community building for the individual gardeners, it was more just like sharing plants with neighbors or sharing plants with friends who are interested in gardening. And um, the sharing of plants was something that I had to convince my two co-advisors who are non-gardeners that that is in fact a thing. If you are a gardener, you share your plants and you have people who are trying to give you plants and that creates a sense of community. I mean, I know people that I'm like, yes, we are friendly, but we just share plants like that's our that's our friendship. (laughs) 
Yeah, sharing plants. Uh, we've we talk about it a lot on this podcast, but then also I think it's fun. Like you said, we're friendly, but our relationship is built on sharing plants. Because there's people where I'm like, okay, I know that your plant's gonna need split in like two years, mm-hmm. so call me then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'll come help you dig it up, mm-hmm. and then I want half of it mm-hmm. instead of like that. We should get lunch sometime. It's like we should share plants sometime. <laughs> yes, exactly. That is totally community. Uh-huh. It is. I love the quote about the school I was just at a school yesterday and you know secret we're pre-recording this so it wasn't yesterday to you (laughs) but um I was just at a school and they had asked me they of course you know surprised me with a film crew Mm -hmm. while we were planting and one of the things they asked me was like well what do you see when you look at this garden and and I told him, I was like, well, now, every time I drive by the school, I'm going to see the faces of the kids that planted with me. And the fact that, like, they were just so happy to be outside. Mm-hmm. Did they care about the plants? A little bit. Some of them. Mm-hmm. But they were really happy to be outside at the end of the school year. Um, and, you know, school can be a pretty intense place to be. I think we forget that as adults, that it's a very structured day um, full of a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I've met with students who really have no connection to school beyond it being a place they go to get told what to do all day. And then when they get to come out and plant, it's like they got to take back a little bit of control. Mm -hmm. They got to put something in the ground. They maybe got to make the decision on where they were going to put that plant. And now it's like a place with a little connection to them. And that's the secret part of Bloombox. We advertise it as, you know, pollinator habitat. Well, it's secretly, it's also water conservation and it's also um, biodiversity, but it's also like a sense of place, Mm -hmm. you know, native plants and and influencing the space around you is a connection that is hard to put into words, Mm -hmm. but um, it's real and um, it's, it comes out to be visible when you see the people's conversation around a space that otherwise they just walked past every Mm day. Yeah. To get deep about it. It helps. (laughs) It helps. I think everyone develop back to Aldo Leopold, a land ethic, Um, having that sense of place and that connection. And one of the things that research, especially into um, gardening and this, rise in especially Americans being lonely has been that they don't have a sense of place Mm -hmm. when you identify yourself as a global citizen it's a lot harder to have a sense of place and when we connect to native plants and our native wildlife that I pun intended it helps ground us Mm -hmm. and give us that sense of place so we don't feel so lonely Mm -hmm. yeah it's like this sense of ownership too of like Yes, I feel like secure here, but like I created this space so that it's comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. So my family, uh, we moved to a new house two years ago now, and we had lived in our previous house for 10 years. And so I had been working on the yard for 10 years. And I love the house, but the yard was my favorite part. Gosh, I sound like my mom. <laughs> and, and it was really hard for me to think about, okay, I'm going to like leave all this behind and go to a new yard. And it was like starting from scratch. Like I didn't have, there were, there was not a lot to work from. And so, um, you know, the first year was like, okay, just write it out, see what's there, 
keep the weeds down, that kind of thing. Ne- next year, okay, so last year was, okay, start adding in, you know, new lines that I wanted, designs in the garden, whatever. And this spring was the first time that I was like, okay, this is this feels more like my, my yard, not like someone else's that I'm starting to mold into something different, but like now this is my space because I've moved like pretty much everything that can be moved and, you know, created these pathways and put in the plants that I appreciate. But yeah, it's that sense of place and the sense of ownership. And it is a little bit of control. Like, you know, the one part of my day that I can control is like, I I can put these plants where I want and I know what they're going to do. I know what to expect. Mm -hmm. And it's like, gives you that, it gives me that sense of comfort. Yeah. I think about that sometimes. We moved into a little bit of an older house and we hope to be there for quite a while. But the reality is that eventually our family will probably outgrow it. And that's so hard for me to think about. And I've said that to my husband a few times, like we just planted, we just planted so much this spring. I told (laughs) Hannah that I loaded up the pots to bring back and it looks like a project. It does not look like somebody's spring plant purchasing. (laughs) And I'm like, I could never leave this. Like, this is my backyard now. Like, I'm part of it. I'm not leaving. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we're working on the house, too. But that doesn't have the same. I'm proud of what we're doing, but it doesn't have the same like, oh, I could never leave this refinished bathroom. <laughs> it's just bathroom. Yeah. But I don't want to leave my backyard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's blood, sweat and tears. <laughs> it is. <laughs> That's for sure. Literally. <laughs> So you always do a project and then you look back and you're like, oh, but I could have done this and I could have done that. So are there questions you wish you'd asked or directions you wish you could have pursued with this um, that you didn't get to because you had to, you know, stay on task and graduate? (laughs) Right. Um, with, I am really happy with the product that I got out of this research, especially with it being the first time that I like put together a survey. And the one thing that I would change that, or I wish I were more prepared for were the interviews and like getting the content out of people that I really wanted and being able to like direct questions better. And that's not necessarily like changing the outcomes per se, just getting some more information. But I am really happy with this. If I were to do it again, I don't know, I would have maybe thrown out a couple of questions that just turned out to be not relevant, but you don't know that when you're putting something together, whether or not a question is going to yield any kind of usable results or any kind of anything that's interesting, really. There's so much research that you could do with this, though. I find, you know, gardeners are special people and they can talk about plants all day. So interviewing gardeners is is a lot of fun. Yeah. Is there, okay. So going off of that, if somebody were to take this and do their master's project on it, like what's the next step? Like what didn't, what did we learn from this as a foundation that we could like build on? What else do we need to know? And maybe I'm thinking about that selfishly as the program coordinator, Mm -hmm. not as a researcher. Like (laughs) what do I need to do next year? (laughs) Maybe for the community piece for, for schools, the community garden aspect, you know, whether it be business or park or something like that, you know this as well as anyone that there's a lot of support that you could try to put into it um, as far as education or, you know, outreach, that kind of thing, like really connecting with people and building a network of people who really care about a space or care about gardening. For individuals, I... 
you know, I'm going to go on your podcast and say this, but like you guys have really done a fantastic job, like from the research that I conducted and the answers that I got, people are very appreciative of not just the plants and people, that's what they're in it for, plants and pollinators, but the support that they got. And, you know, I had a question and the people at Bloombox, oh, those poor people at Bloombox, I've asked them so many questions and they always respond. Like that is well done here in this situation. And so when I think about, you know, recommendations, it wasn't really specifically at Bloombox per se. It was more like program developers, because like you said, Sarah, like this is a a finite program, like you can only support so much, but other people can do it. And so I think it's a really great model for other places to look at and be like, oh, we can we can do that as well. The hardest part about supporting communities and gardening is just the, the amount of effort and hours that that takes. And I, there's no substitute for that. Um, so I think that is kind of hard. But for the individual support, it's been, I think, from my perspective, it's been fantastic with all the education and, and resources that are given. One thing, and, and this could be, this is kind of difficult, but, you know, as people get their gardens in places and they are there for a while and, you know, plants might be running all over the place or might need divided for whatever reason. Um, I think people get scared of plants and they don't, you know, they think once they're in the ground, you can't move them. But if you're a gardener like me and you're like, I didn't like that plant there this year, I'm moving it next (laughs) year is breaking people out of that, being apprehensive about losing a plant or moving a plant or dividing a plant. I know I planted a garden this weekend with people and I'm like, oh, you just rip the roots apart, you know, like that's just how you do it. It's just a plant. It'll be fine. Within reason, of course. But I, I, I think that showing people doing that demonstration of how to do that regular maintenance and it's not always necessary, but for some people, it might be beneficial. Yeah, that's um, that's the piece that I'm currently... I'm accepting ideas, by the way. <laughs> um, staying in touch with people on that ongoing maintenance. That's the hard part of any garden is, mm-hmm. is planting day was one day of a lifetime of a living thing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I can give people all the information on day one. I don't like getting information that way. If you give me 10 years of information on day one... I'm not going to read it. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say that I'll read day one information. So I am trying to to find that sweet spot of like, I don't want to be in people's email inbox all the time, but I do want to be there as a support mm-hmm. for year five. Like an alumni association. Yeah. Yeah. The Bloombox alumni. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a really good point uh, about all the information that you could know. Like I think of plants that, you know, plants have a lifetime that is not infinite and at some point your plant is going to die and it's not because you're a neglectful gardener or a terrible gardener or whatever it's just because you know everything dies eventually and so understanding you mean plants aren't immortal no <laughs> <Bummer>. <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> 
understanding the life cycle of that plant and how to not extend it necessarily, but continue it. So using seeds or using root cuttings or using, you know, any means of propagation that you understand is another way to, you know, extend kind of the life of that plant. Ooh, plant propagation. That was my degree. That's where we can get really nerdy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's a whole nother podcast. (laughs) Hannah already, um, you know, let me do soil. So I'll give her a few months before we go propagation. I think she just flinched when I said root cutting. Any of you who've got my current favorite ground cover, Snow Flurry Aster, or the geranium this year, those were all root cuttings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just planted like seven of them, Snow Flurry Aster. So there we go. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Anne. Absolutely. We really appreciate all the work that you did to help us learn more about Bloombox. And now we get to go into our favorite segment of every episode which we probably didn't warn you about because we're really bad at warning our guests about. Sarah, what's your plan of the week? Okay, I think mine is Missouri Primrose. I just used this. So um, in this backyard I was talking about, we have this landscape bed that runs along our patio where we sit. And it's got kind of like a bulbed end and then it gets skinnier. And so I put a Baptisia, the dwarf blue indigo, in the middle of the bulb. And then I had to find small things to go around it. And I did some Missouri Primrose. And it's just got like, it's silver foliage. And then it's got these big papery teacup shaped flowers. And I love them. And it's it's also breaking with we accidentally designed almost our whole backyard in pink and blue accidentally it just happened and so I'm trying to break that color scheme and so I got some yellow in there. (laughs) I love that plant for the seed pod. Oh the seed pods are so cool. They're like little big fat winged pods, papery pods and you can pull them apart and they have all the seeds inside and they do they do seed out so you can you can grow your colony. (laughs) I hope to. I hope they kind of cover that space. I like plants to cover a space. I know it can be a little intimidating but um, mulch is expensive guys Mm -hmm. and I want the plants to fill the space. Mm -hmm. And do you have a plant of the week? It can be any plant. Uh, Christina in her episode did lettuce so really anything you want. (laughs) Okay, I got one. Okay, so my plant of the week would be a juga. Uh, I think the, one of the car- common names might be like carpet bugle, maybe. Uh, but I think Bob sells as bugle weed, which bugle is really weed. not a complimentary name, but it's pretty. Yeah, so I like to call it a juga because it's fun to say. But it spreads really, really great as a ground cover. It has this like orange, or not orange, uh, like burgundy purplish foliage and right now it has these cute little stacks of purple flowers so it's in the mint family and so it has that square stem and also lipton lobe flowers that pollinators really like and it's just a really cute little ground cover and since you said you were weeding this morning i understand why you chose a ground cover Mm -hmm. because you probably didn't have to do as much weeding inside Mm -hmm. the ajuga yeah exactly (laughs) okay hannah how about you what's your favorite plant this week so this week my iris are blooming and they are just gorgeous. And I think the thing that really surprised me is like two days ago, I didn't even notice that they were about to bloom. And now there's like three different colors in full bloom, fully open, just beautiful. So, um, 
iris are one of my favorite and my husband's favorite. It's like the only plant in our garden that he cares about. <laughs> and I usually try to cut him some uh, when they bloom because he likes them so much. His favorite is a dark, dark purple, like almost black purple iris. So we have a couple different types of that. So that's that's my highlighted plant of the week okay well this was very fun and a lovely confidence boost for hannah and i because we're recording in early may so we're in the height of bloombox packing season which uh can be a little rough time for me everybody's kind enough to put up with my stress level this week but um it's really good to hear that bloombox is doing the job we designed it to do and uh that people are enjoying it and we hope it's going to continue for a long time so Thank you for sharing your your research with us. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Thank you for listening, everyone. Don't forget to rate and review us anywhere you're listening to this podcast. Send us your questions so that we can answer them because we are happy to do so. You can do that on our website through our SpeakPipe link if you would like your voice to be on the podcast, which is always fun. So thank you for listening. Bloombox, Bloombox, Growing Deeper, our programs of the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum. Mm-hmm.